James 1, 5 through 8 is where we'll be um, this morning. I, uh, I was in my early 20s, and I thought at that point I had kind of arrived. I thought that at that point I knew lots of things. I had overcome a lot of difficulty as an adolescent. I'd overcome a, a, a challenging childhood. I'd overcome the stigma of me being uh, the special kid, all right? Um, I'd overcome some of those things. And so I went to college and got a degree in biblical studies. And at that point, I thought I'd really arrived. Now, biblical studies, I had studied the Bible, and my degree is in studying the Bible. And it, it sounds interesting when you talk about it, but actually when you see it on paper, if you're applying to a secular job, it looks very strange because it's a BA and BS. Um, but that's what I have. Um, but I thought I'd arrived. I thought I'd, I'd had things figured out. And I then met a beautiful girl when I was in college. And she's today, she's my wife. And we're going on our 10th year of being married. And I thought, here she is, beautiful girl. And she was a new believer. And she had lots of questions about the Bible, which is, I was like, okay, I can answer your questions on the Bible. I happen to have a degree in the Bible, in BS. I know the Bible. And so I thought, well, this is going to be great. And then um, we got in a relationship. I was like, this is a little harder than I thought. This is a little more difficult. And then I proposed to her. And then she said, yes. And so we got married. And I was like, marriage is easy. I actually took a marriage and family class in Bible college, and I studied the Song of Solomon exegetically, and I know how this works. This is going to be fine. This is going to work. And then we got married, and I said, this is a little bit harder than I thought. This is a little bit more challenging. And then, okay, we find out we're pregnant. Well, mainly Jess was pregnant, and she's pregnant, and here we are, and we're like, okay, we we can do this. I can do this, uh, mainly because I took a child and adolescent development class while I was in Bible school, and I know for sure that I know how to have a child. So just watch me, Jess. I'll take care of this. And then uh, Finn was born, and then I, I remember this night well because it was February 3rd, 2007, right after NC State beat North Carolina, and I was already sad, but then he lifted my spirits. Um, but I saw him, and I held him for the first time, and I was like, Isaiah the prophet, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. What am I doing? You know, can we put him back in there for a month or so and talk about this? Because this is going to be harder than I thought. And I could go over with you the first time that she would leave me with Finn and how terrified I was that, I don't know, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I realized, okay, I, I don't n- know everything that I think I know. I'm a, I'm a little bit dumber than I thought I was. And then the same thing with ministry. I, I went into ministry. I've been in ministry now for 14 years. And Planting this church was a, was a huge learning curve for me. I said, I, I studied the, took the right classes. I went to missions class. I went to church planning classes, but it's way harder than I thought it was. And then now I'm, I'm in my mid-30s. I've been in ministry now for 14 years. I've been married almost 10 years. And I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know if any of those classes helped, to be honest with you. And so I'm just trying to put the, the pieces together. And I think there's something in your mid-30s where you begin to realize, like, I've learned a lot over the years, but now I realize how much I don't know and how much I need to know in order to, to really make it. And so maybe this morning, what I'm trying to propose to you, maybe there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because I had some knowledge, but I didn't have any way to know how to apply 
that knowledge for it to be wisdom. Now, I tell you this, and this is an important text for us here in James this morning, because we have a church full of young people. And a lot of you, you've, you've, you're going through a, a major that's, you can, you're going to make good money. And we've talked about this as elders. Is there any way that we can get you to give based on your future incomes? So that would be huge for us. <laughs> because some of you are trained to be doctors and all these things. And, and so you have um, in this room a lot of people who are young, who have, they're building up and growing in knowledge. But I want to tell you, even thinking through that. Okay, we've got some smart people here. We've got some people that are deep in their careers. We've got some, we've got some people who are already doctors. We've got some people who are already lawyers. We've got some people who are already um, doc, uh, surgeons. We've got some ECU professors here. Thank God. But when you see the amount of knowledge that we can even have in this room, and if you don't have any of those things, that's fine. Because God, if you were to look at both of these things in Scripture, knowledge and wisdom, God certainly favors wisdom far more than he does knowledge. And that is important for us to grasp this morning. Because there is a reason why my grandmother, Miss Tugwell, graduated or finished with only a sixth grade education. She had a sixth grade education. She lived on a farm. But here's what we know about her. She loved Jesus. And at her funeral, when we sat and we wept, all of us together, we remember stories. And all of the stories are about how she was speaking into some of one in our lives and discipling us in the gospel. And there's a reason why we can stand up and we can celebrate her life because on paper, if we're, in our culture, she looks like a failure because of the sixth grade education. But if you go to her funeral and you'd hear these stories and we would marvel at what Jesus did in her life, well, it's because God values wisdom far more than he does knowledge. And so what is wisdom? Why is it so important? Well, fortunately... We have a book in the New Testament that speaks a lot of wisdom, and that's the book of James. And I think James is a perfect candidate to be speaking on this topic because James actually has, uh, he's had the best example of wisdom in his life. James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So James lived with the standard of what wisdom is because he lived with God in the flesh He saw Jesus uh, apply different truths to his life and live them out with perfection. And so James, he writes this book about two believers who need to hear practical truths of the Christian life. And he starts it out with, how is it that you live a life of wisdom? So let's see what James says in chapter 1, verse 5 of James. He says this, if any of you lacks wisdom. Let him ask God who gives what? Generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Now to understand this properly, we have to understand who James is talking to. James is a former Jew. He's now a believer. It's very interesting. You see in the very first couple of verses, James is the brother of Jesus, yet he calls Jesus Lord. He calls him God, and he says, I am his servant. Now, I don't know any of you in this room who would say that your sibling is, you're a servant to your sibling, or your sibling is God. But this is how James viewed Jesus. 
James then, he becomes a believer in Jesus. We don't know exactly when he became a believer. We can assume that he did in the early church because we know throughout the Gospels that Jesus' brothers doubted him frequently. They doubted that he was the son of God, but James became a believer. And then we see the early church explode. The early church saw and heard the gospel. And then it began to expand in Jerusalem. It became a massive church where people were being saved daily. But what happened? Well, persecution took place. And now these former Jews who are now believers in Jesus are facing really a life-threatening torment toward all of these Jews who want to keep the law the same way. All of these Pharisees, all of these Sadducees, all of these people who want to persecute those who've repented and believe in the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ alone. And so what happens? Well, they have to move out of Jerusalem and out of Israel, and they live in these displaced places all around the, the empire. And now they're living in homes, and they're doing life together, and they're trying to figure out, how do I live a life for Jesus Christ? Because here's the thing. They didn't have the, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have what we have today. So they're trying to figure out, how can I glorify God being in a displaced place? And everything around me is, uh, is unfamiliar. How do I glorify God in this way? So now, some 10 years later, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this letter to these people who have been displaced, and he tells them how to practically live as a Christian. How do you tame your tongue? How do you become wise? How do you treat rich people? How do you treat poor people? But how he starts the whole letter is how do you handle various trials of various kinds? And then he tells them to do that, you have to have wisdom. Now, the context here, he, when he talks about it, we just opened up with verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. But he's actually talking about it in the context of how you handle trials. We know that because of the way that he begins the letter. He says, count it all joy when you face various trials. But then even further down in verse 12, you'll see where he says, and I'll just read it. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. And so verses 1 all the way to verse 18, we could argue that the whole context is how a believer in Jesus Christ handles various trials and how they have to rely on God to do that. And so we have here James who says, you are lacking nothing if you face a trial. The reason why God puts you through a trial, this is in verse 4, that you are lacking nothing, which means you are maturing in God, that you are not relying on anything else but God. And he, so he ends that way in verse 4, and then he immediately goes into verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks nothing in verse 4, but then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom in verse 5. That's strange. Why would he make that connection? Well, it's because he's saying this. If you've been given anything, it's because God has given it to you. And if any of us in this room lack anything, it's because the sovereign God of the universe is yet to give it to you. So he says, look, if any of you lack wisdom, if any of you lack anything, it's because God hasn't given to you. So look, if you lack wisdom while you are facing persecution, just ask God and he'll give it to you generously. God wants to help us through our suffering. God wants to help us through our uh, our trials if we are believers. And so he starts this letter off with wisdom. What is wisdom? Let me, let me explain how a Jewish mind 
would have understood what wisdom is. To a Jew, wisdom was really the pinnacle of what it means to live for God. A Jew would argue that there's two ways to live. You can be a wise person or you could be a foolish person. A wise person wants to live for God. A foolish person leads to destruction. So they only have this mindset of there's two ways to live. Furthermore, they would have read the book of Proverbs. They would have been very familiar with the practical teaching in Proverbs. And this is why James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament, because it's so practical and shows us how to live a practical life for Jesus. And so Proverbs, the Jew would have heard wisdom and immediately drawn their attention to the book of Proverbs. They would have read things like Proverbs, verse 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7 will be on the screen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, fools despise wisdom and instruction. They would have heard things like Proverbs 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, for for from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. They would have read things like the entire chapter, the entire chapter of Proverbs chapter 8, which talks about wisdom in this way, that because of wisdom, the world was formed. Because of wisdom, we are able to survive, and we are able to eat. And because of wisdom, man was formed. And then it even ends with Proverbs 8, verse 35, one of my favorite uh, portions of script in the book of Proverbs. It says, for whoever finds me finds life, or whoever finds me finds wisdom and obtains favor from the Lord. So when James comes on the scene, he writes to Jewish Christians telling them to have wisdom during trials, they would, say, they would hear it this way. Ask God for favor during a trial. Ask God to aid you during a trial. Now, I struggle greatly with this verse. And I'll tell you why. Because this is not at all how I pray. When most of us in this room, if we're honest, when we pray, we often pray when we're facing a trial of various kinds, whatever it is, could be small, could be big. When we face trials, we often pray in such a way that is, God, get me out of this trial. God, would you just take away the pain? God, would you just remove that annoying person from my life? God, would you just speed up the traffic a little bit? Get me out of this trial. Get me out of this difficulty. That's often the way that we pray. And if I'm honest, when I pray for my boys, I I pray for them every single night. And I pray, Lord, protect them. Lord, keep them safe. Keep our home safe. Protect our home Now, there's nothing wrong with praying in that way. There's nothing wrong with praying for protection of my home or safety or any of those things. However, don't you find it interesting that when God challenges us to pray while we face trials, he doesn't challenge us to pray ourselves out of them. He he challenges us to pray in them. Give me wisdom in this trial. Ask for wisdom when you face trials of various kinds. So that challenges me to pray in that way. I don't want to do that. But we learn something about God's character in just these few verses. Because saying, look, if you are facing a trial, if you're facing difficulty and you pray in this way and you're asking God to give you wisdom, what are you showing about God? It means that God can handle it. 
It means there's nothing in your life right now, believer. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's nothing in your life right now that God cannot handle. Why? Because God has sovereignly placed you in trials. Therefore, he's sovereignly going to help you endure through the trial. And this is why the language that he gives says he gives generously without reproach. Therefore, in verse 6, it says, but let him ask in faith. So we come to God asking in faith who gives generously. Now, there are many ways that we can view that verse. I've heard prosperity teachers take that to mean we just ask and he's supposed to give it to us. If we have a certain level of faith, then we'll become richer and more healthier. Like, so we can view God that way. So you, you either, um, the way that you would interpret this verse is really how you view God. You either view God as a genie or you view God as a father. Now, if you view him as a genie, here's what your prayer life and here's what you live, how, is how you live um, practically in response to that view of God. If you, if you see him as a genie, you depend on your effort to ask the right way. So if I say a certain thing, if I say the magic words that I'm going to unlock something in God where he's supposed to do these things, he's supposed to respond this way. And then it becomes more about what you want than, listen, than what you actually deserve. I want this car, and if I pray this way, or I, I do these things, if I come to church, if I join a life group, then he's supposed to give me this car, and he's supposed to give me this house, and he's supposed to give me that job and that promotion so I can show all my neighbors up. He's supposed to do that. And that's viewing God as a genie. We're trying to control God, and, and we, it's really like having a relationship with a pinata. If I hit God a certain way, if I press God a certain way, if I tell him or I command him to do a certain thing, then he has to do it. But there's no relationship there. And this is why we must view God the biblical way, and that's to view him as a father. In the, the language of scripture, they use God, they call God as father more than 200 times in the Bible. In the New Testament, he's shown as father in this way, which means this. When we see him as father, we be, begin to borrow the language of scripture, which means that you, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And that you were once alienated from God, and you were once a foreigner from God, yet he chose you before the foundation of the world, and he's adopted you. He's adopted Ben Tugwell, and he's adopted you men, and he calls you his son. He's adopted you ladies, and he calls you his daughter. And he wants to give you good things during a trial because every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so when we come to him, we ask it's because we already view him as a father. And this is why it says that he does so, he gives generously, verse 5, without reproach, which means there is nothing you can do to God that will make him love you any more or any less because of what Jesus Christ has done. So when you come to him and you ask him, with, and what he means without reproach, means he's not going to hold it over you in this way. He's not saying, it's not conditional on how you perform it's all about his generosity and his grace. Why? 
It's because he's like a father. I love when Jesus' language that he uses throughout the Gospels, he'll often call himself in this way that he wants people to come to him like little children. And there's a place in Luke, and I'll just read it, Luke 11, or Luke 18, rather, verse 15. It says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So Jesus is surrounded by crowds and crowds of people when he's teaching what the kingdom of God is like. And then the Bible tells us they're bringing children to him. Now look at the disciples. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of God. So if you come to me like a children, you belong to the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the position that God wants us to to approach him on is like a child. Now, some people have t- taken this and run with it, which means they, we're supposed to keep things simple because we're supposed to have childlike faith, which means we don't go into the deep things of God. Not at all what it's about. It's about how we understand our position versus his position. Now, being a father now of two children, um, I have had moments where I have really panicked. Um, and one of the ones I can remember is when my son Gideon, he was seven, six or seven months old, and my wife Jess and my son Finn had run an errand and they left the house and I was giving our son Gideon a bath. And he loved it when you just put him in there completely naked and lay him right on the surface and then the water would run and it would rise up around him. And he just loved it because he'd kick and he'd laugh and scream and all those things. And I just remember having this crazy thought of what happens... While this water's running, what happens if I have a brain aneurysm and I just pass out? Well, that water is just going to keep rising, and there is nothing he can do right now. Like, this is a scary thought. Like, he's, I'm full. So I, like, I was like, oh. So I, like, immediately pulled him up, right? You know, I immediately pulled him up, which is unlikely that would happen, but I just freaked out because it just showed how dependent he was on me. Now, the older he gets, the more and more he thinks that he's not dependent on me. Like my oldest, my, my son, Finn, he's seven years old. I mean, he thinks he's, he's less dependent on me than he actually is. So let's just say the same thing happens. I have a brain aneurysm. I'm watching Finn, and you don't care about me enough to check on, up on me in a couple months. A couple months have gone by. Finn is at home. Would he survive? Yeah. I mean, he goes to the first round of a week of just living off gummy bears, and he realize. And when he's out of those, he'd go to like real food, you know, like carrots and things. And he would survive over time. But listen, that dude ain't getting a job. I mean, he's seven years old. In this economy, right, we've got, we've got people that have college degrees that can't get a job. Seven years old, he's not getting a job. He cannot make it. He cannot survive. He's completely and utterly dependent on mom and dad. And I want him to believe that until he's 35 years old, right? When, kind of. Um, and so I... No, my boys, they don't see it, but they absolutely are dependent on their mom and their dad. So what does it mean when Jesus tells his disciples, when it tells us, come to me like children, he's saying this, you come to me like you fully depend on me and you see the weight of your helpless state that I'm the God of the universe and I'm the only one, 
the only one that can save you and the only one that can get you through this trial. So when you look at your trial and you see yourself as you need to get through this trial, you see that I am utterly dependent on you, God. So I'm going to ask you, God, to help. And the way that James uses it, he likens it to a father because it's without reproach. It's not conditional. There's nothing that my two boys can do to make them love, so that I would love them any less. Nothing. Nothing. It's unconditional love of a father. And that's the way that God wants to see his believing children. Luke 11, verse 11, it says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead uh, a fish give him a serpent? Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, We'll give him a scorpion. That's really mean. The guy just wants some eggs, right? He's going to give him a poisonous animals. To It's not a loving father. Verse 13, if then who are evil, how to, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? This is what the father wants to do for his children. So this is why he says, you ask in faith, you ask believing that he is your father. And it's not based on your performance. It's not based on how you ask. It's based on his love and it's based on his generosity. And that's why he does it without reproach. Now, I want you to keep that context and burn it into your mind. Because if you look at the very next verse, out of that context, that God is sovereign over all, that God loves his children, that he's a father over us, if you take the next verse out of that context, you will lose sight of the whole thing. So keep that context in mind. Now let's let's read verse 6, the second part of verse 6. But let him ask in faith without, without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is, the, this is one who doubts. This is the doubter that he's describing. He, he's blown, tossed to and fro by every wind. You see it in, later in Ephesians when Paul says a person doesn't have sound doctrine, they're not maturing, they're, they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That doesn't sound bad. But if you've been seasick, that is bad. Like I have a, I have a really queasy stomach. If you know me really well, you know that about me. But there's one time in my life where I wanted my life to literally, I, have, I asked God, come Jesus Christ now. You can take me as I am. I am fine. If I never marry or have children, that's what I prayed then. And I was seasick. And it was a horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. Now, I don't want you to think I'm rugged and I was like on deadliest catch or anything. I was on a kayak and I was seasick. <laughs> I was on a kayak, seasick. And I went to look at dolphins with friends of mine. And I was crazy embarrassed because the wind, well, the wind was blowing more than it should have, all right? Um, and so, but look, I was, I was moving like this, constantly moving like this, being blown to and fro, and the wind controlled the entire day, and it ruined everything for me. I, it was so bad, I jumped out and swam back, and I just left that kayak. They had to tie it up and bring it back. And so that was, that was me being seasick. Tossed to and fro. And and here's the thing. When James uses that illustration, it's not a casual illustration at all. Because he's saying, you are unstable if you are not trusting God in this way. 
If you're not asking God in faith and you're living like this, you are unstable. And he actually says later, you're unstable in all your ways. And so does this mean that every time we doubt we're like this? Does that mean that I can be a, a Christian who's full of the spirit of God and living in obedience to him. I'm now bought with a price. I now have a new heart that loves him. I'm an incurable God lover. And now when I face doubt of any kind, I'm going to now be like I'm stuck out in sea alone. Is that what that means? Well, certainly as believers in Jesus, if we're honest, we all face some level of doubt. So does this mean that we're just going to be like this every time we doubt? Well, certainly not. It can't be that. If he's a loving father, he's not just going to leave us out at sea. So what does this mean? Verse 7 and 8, help us understand it. This is why the context is so important. Look at verse 7 and 8. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Does that sound like this guy has a loving father? He will not receive anything from the Lord because he's a doubter. Then it even says... He is double-minded. He's a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all his or her ways. They're unstable in all of their ways. The actual, the real translation of double-minded actually means you are two-souled. You have two souls that are warring against one another. Now, a believer in Jesus has a new heart. You were bought with the price of, Jesus dying on the cross in your place. He lived the life that you should have lived. He, he died the death that you were condemned to die, and he died in your place for your sins. And because of that, he's taken out the old, and he's replaced it with the new. You have a new heart that loves God, which means that your allegiance belongs to God. Even though you're going to doubt, even though you're going to worry, even though you're going to have fear, your allegiance belongs to God. And you have a loving father who wants to give you great things so that you would in turn love him more. So you are an incurable God lover as a believer. You're an incurable God lover. But here you have someone who is unstable in all their ways. They're double-minded. They're two-souled. This here is not a believer. This is not a believer who is doubting. This is a non-believer. How do we know this for sure? Well, James actually describes the same person in chapter 4, verse 8, as a non-believer that James is trying to challenge to repent and believe the gospel. Look at what he says in James 4, 8 to a non-believer. He says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you what? Double-minded. He's telling this double-minded person, repent. Uh, Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Become a believer. This person doesn't know him. He's two-souled. He's double-minded. One of my favorite books outside of the Bible is a book I think everybody should read. It's uh, by John Bunyan. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. If you grew up in even not going to church, you probably heard it in a literature class or something like that, but it's one of my favorite books. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's different characters, and they, the, the characters are, like, the main character's name is Christian, and he's a Christian, right? So it, it gives you, like, the name of what that person actually does. And in the book, there's actually a guy, and his name is Mr. Facing Both Ways. And Mr. Facing Both Ways actually comes from the town of Deceit. 
because this person is deceived. In the entire book, or the little short description that John Bunyan has of Mr. Facing Both Ways, is he's a person who's attempting the impossible to face opposite directions at the same time. And he's saying, that's impossible. He's, he comes from the town of deceit. He's deceived. And this is like many, what we would say, cultural Christians, who they say with their lips, I love Jesus Christ, but they're double-minded, they're two souls, because they haven't given their full allegiance to him. They haven't given their heart to him. And so the way that James challenges this thought is they are like loners out on the sea, blown and tossed by every wind. And they have no security. They have no stabilities. In fact, they're unstable in all of his or her ways. So I tell you all of that because what is so important here that I want you to see is there's a difference between how a believer handles trials and how a non-believer handles trials. And I want to tell you this this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you love Jesus and you've repented of your sins and you believe only in Jesus out of response to what he's done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he cannot give you any more than what he has already given you. And that is why the cross is enough. Meaning, because of that, he promises, he promises us that in order for us to even love him more, he has to put us through trials. Why? Because we can have knowledge and we can have all the information that we want about the Bible, but we have to apply that knowledge and it has to be wisdom And sometimes applying that knowledge happens while we're facing trials of various kinds. And those trials of various kinds that give us wisdom actually cause us to love him and trust him even more. So we're literally, we're almost invincible in the sense of trials and how God will glorify himself through them. That's that's what he wants to do to a believer. And so God cannot give you more than he's already given you or promised you. Everything already for you to live is already at your disposal because your father has it for you. He has it for you. And so this is how we view God in suffering because we see him as a father who wants to bless and help his children even in a trial. And God has promised that he would, you would go through trials. And not only that, he's promised that if you ask wisdom, he'll help you through it. Now, it'll look different for everybody. That's what he's promised us. So that's a believer. Now, a non-believer does not have this reality at all. A non-believer does not have the privileges that we have to come to him as a father. They have a different father. They have a different father. So they can only be lost at sea when they face trials. And they can only rely on simple words or phrases of, well, hopefully, things will have better luck next year, right? Right? Hopefully, fate will will run its course. Hopefully, we'll we'll start doing better things because apparently we have bad karma. And if if we want things to go better for us, we'll have to do better things. And then hopefully karma will turn on the other side and help us out in this. And that's that's kind of the worldly mindset when we face trials and we go through it as a non-believer. 
we're lost at sea. We have no security. We have no love and care in our life like a father does for his children. But a believer, we can only trust that he's in control of all things. He's sovereign and good. And we can only trust that what he has planned for us, that he will give us the wisdom to get us through it. And we can believe, we can look through scripture and we can see how that's happened through people who have believed in Jesus. And we can look through church history, we can look through people that we know that love Jesus. And I can guarantee you the true authentic believers can tell you, look, that trial that I faced, that difficulty that I faced, I just trusted God and it didn't make sense to me at first, but God, he loved me so much through it and he helped me through it. And I love him more as a result of what he has sovereignly placed in my life. And when I see things like this in scripture, I cling to places in scripture like Ephesians 2.10, which it says, for we are his workmanship. If you don't know this, you have to memorize it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which means this, it's not about how it's not really about how we do good works that God prepared beforehand. It's actually about the things that he's planned in our life that we should walk in them. And they've been created for Christ Jesus so that we would love him more. And so I say all these things this morning. And I think this is why this text this morning is so relevant for us. It's because we as a church, we value scripture highly. If you don't notice that, we go through books of the Bible. We try to go through verse by verse. We take our time. We just did three verses just now. We take our time. We may get through James like by the summer. We don't know. And we take our time. We want you to know what this is. I mean, you can leave and you can do Bible study curriculum on James. I mean, you, can, you could write a book on systematic theology if you came to integrity for numbers of years and heard the sound doctrine that we want to consistently teach you. But listen, if you've never applied it, if you've never taken the knowledge that you have and applied it and in turn lived it out so that you would be a better worshiper of him, so that you would glorify him the most in your life, we are completely wasting our time. And we have picked up a really dull hobby. And we want you to grow in knowledge, but we want you to take that and turn that into godly living so that you would one day be wise. And so this morning, I want to challenge you in that because 10 years from now, if we take what God is showing us in his word and we live it out practically, that's going to look different for everyone in this room. Everyone in this room, God has prepared your steps beforehand that you would walk in them. I have no idea how that's going to look. Some of you are going to have harder lives than me. Some of you won't. Some of you will face trials and difficulties. Some of you will lose loved ones. Some of you will have diseases. And that's going to be hard. And that's going to be difficult. But there is nothing, there's nothing that God won't put you through that he won't help you in. And so the hope of a believer is this, just trusting God, that he's a God of love, he's sovereign and good over all things, and he's a father who wants to bless us, and he wants to help us even in the midst of trials. So this morning, maybe the right response would just be coming before him and being humble and saying, God, I am fully dependent on you. 
you are God, I am not. I'm just asking you to help me because I think I have everything figured out, but maybe I don't. So would you show me areas of my life where I need to trust you? Would you show me areas of my life where I need to depend on you? And I'm not trusting in my own strength. I'm not trusting in my own effort. Would you show me that? Maybe that would be a response. Maybe the response would be just honestly saying, look, I'm going through a trial. For you men in this room, it's probably hard. You don't like admitting that something's wrong. You don't like asking for directions. You don't like being honest and transparent. But maybe this morning, this will be a place for you to do that where it's safe. You can say, look, I'm struggling with this trial. I'm facing this trial. And this is why things like life groups are important for all of us. Because in there, we can be honest and open about our trials and what we're facing and then have other believers speak into our lives and help us walk in that. And so this morning, maybe, maybe God just wants to bring us to a point where we're just humble. And we're just going, God, we're, we come to you like children. You're our father. We come to you like children. Would you just help us? And whatever that is. And listen, listen to this. If you've never, if you're not in a trial right now, you will be one, in one because he promises that. Maybe you just got out of one. But listen, no matter what, you still have to depend on him. So let's trust him this morning as our father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly this morning as your children, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I love the language that James uses, even though he's the...